had created some small surface cuts on her wrists. We found out from school, I think was the first call we got. And then we received a call from the friend's parent because her, her friend was scared. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. About two and a half, three years ago, I got a phone call from my friend Dee asking about the best way as a parent to respond to her daughter that she had just found out had been self-injuring. And today I am joined by my friend Dee, who is going to share her experience as a parent, what it was like to respond to her daughter and how she got her help and what that was like. Thank you for joining us, Dee. Yeah, glad to be here. Using general terms, what was it that you found out that your daughter had been doing? Well, this was in sixth grade, and she had created some small surface cuts on her wrist and had done it three times in a series of a small amount of time over just a couple of weeks. But I had not, I did not know that this was happening. And she had brought it up to a good friend who did the right thing and told a teacher at school. So it escalated pretty quickly. And you know, we were called from the school about what they had found out and that they were worried about my daughter and asked us to, you know, seek help for her, which of course we would have done anyway. So you found out from the school, not necessarily from your daughter or her friend. Correct. Yeah. We found out from school, I think was the first call we got. And then we received a call from the friend's parent because her her friend was scared and had gone home and talked to her mom about our daughter and worries that it was suicidal behavior and she was worried in that way. And so all of this sort of happened at the same time. I'm actually not, now that you say it, I'm not sure if the mom called me first or if the school called me first. But then of course we talked to our daughter right after that and tried to get an idea of what was going on. So sixth grade, they're probably 11 years old, maybe 12 years old, and your daughter tells her friend, which a lot of adults aren't sure how to respond, let alone an 11-year-old or 12-year-old. Right. So she was really scared and wasn't sure if your daughter was suicidal or not suicidal. So she did the right thing, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. and told her own parents and got the school involved. And so at some point you were brought in to the school. Is that what I'm gathering? I think it was a phone call at first. And they had offered that she visit with the school counselor, but we knew the school counselor was not a trained counselor. She was a counselor by title. And so we chose not to go that route. And thankfully, you're a good friend of mine. So who else do you call to try to figure out, you know, what to do next? I knew that she needed to talk to somebody. I just didn't know what that route looked like. And so we sought counseling as soon as we could and had to go through a couple of people before we found the right fit. And I think that that was critical for my daughter because we didn't want to start her off 
in counseling with somebody that she didn't feel connected to. And for her, that personal connection is really important. And so, you know, the first person, very talented, but there was an age differential that I think made it difficult for my sixth grade daughter to connect to her and eventually found somebody who was a a bit younger that my daughter felt could relate to her in a little bit of a, a way that felt more comfortable. And so that was a fantastic opportunity because she really connected right away with her. I'm really happy to hear how sensitive you were to your daughter's comfort depending on which therapist. And and I think as a clinician myself, as a psychologist who works with adolescents every day, one of the conversations when I meet with families for the very first time is making sure it's a good fit. And I know Mm -hmm. a lot of parents want their child, understandably, in therapy at times, and especially when they can benefit from it. And I think we can all benefit Mm -hmm. from being in therapy, regardless of our severity of problems. Mm -hmm. But being able to respect that in your daughter, knowing that it might not always be a good fit. Because I think a lot of parents are not sure how to find a therapist or be able to say, you know, I don't think this is a good fit. And one thing I try to communicate is like, listen, I understand if it's not always a good fit and I will be willing to help you find someone that might be a better fit than me. And it sounds like you did exactly that and didn't pressure her. I'll come back to that. But I want to go back to when you first found out talking to the school. Do you remember what your conversation was like with the counselor or with the school? Well, I think they were catastrophizing the situation. Their big concern was that this was suicidal behavior and that she needed to be pulled from school. They wanted to make sure that she sought immediate psychiatric services. And so I think I had to do a little bit of educating, really, you know, based on how how you helped me to let them know that this really wasn't the same thing. And that she did not have any suicidal thoughts and that we would seek counseling based on sort of the expertise and that youth friendliness that I knew was going to be important to her. So they thought it was a suicidal behavior and we didn't talk until after you had that conversation with the school. Is that correct? Yes. Right. Because I think all of that happened within, you know, a day or so. So you had enough knowledge at the time to know the difference between suicide and non-suicidal self-injury, like the cutting that they were sharing with you about your daughter. And I know a lot of parents have similar experiences where they may get phone calls from the school and the school is not sure if their child is suicidal. And so I can imagine that must be a hard conversation to have as a parent. So when they first talked to you about the cutting, what was it like for you to find out that way from the school or to have that conversation? Obviously scary. You want to you wanna make sure that your kids are always doing well. But also, I was glad, I was glad that my daughter had opened up to a friend and that the school was swift on acting so that I was informed enough to be able to do something about it. Yes, you know, they did sort of think it was suicidal behavior. And I don't fault them for that. I I understand that, you know, they just don't perhaps know the difference. But it did help me to be able to act by informing us as soon as possible. 
So it was helpful to know as soon as possible. It was just, it would have been more helpful to have gotten a clear delineation of the behavior and what it was, because there's a big difference between suicide and non-suicidal self-injury. Right. How do you remember initially responding to the school when they mentioned that? Well, I asked them for some clarification on what the behavior was that they that had been reported. And that's when they mentioned it was cutting. Later on, my daughter did disclose that they had her really sort of stripped down and took pictures and everything to make sure that she was not, I guess, looking at the severity of the injuries. And perhaps some of that is required by schools to be able to react to you know, either self-injury or even reports of abuse. And so I, I did not know that at the time, but in later conversations with her, she did mention that how weird that was for her. More than weird. It sounds humiliating if I'm a teenager and I'm being told to strip down when in my mind, there may not seem to be a reason, a good enough reason to do so. How threatening or how scary that must be. And I imagine, especially for individuals who might have a history of abuse, you had mentioned abuse. I'm just saying it in general, not about your daughter, but they're told by school staff to strip down so they can look at wounds. That can be incredibly fear inducing, I imagine. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I would have reacted to that had I known earlier. This just recently came up, which is, you know, interesting in and of itself that she didn't disclose that at the time. And the school did not disclose that, of course. So when you got the call, they initially said that they had concerns that your daughter was suicidal? Yes, that she had reported hurting herself and that they weren't certain if she was suicidal or not. And then you asked the question what it was that she had done. Right. And you understood that to be non-suicidal. I don't know how many parents are that knowledgeable about this topic to be able to know the correct question to ask to get that clarification and then to be alleviated to know that it's not suicidal. A lot of parents may think of cutting as a suicidal behavior and worry that their child is either attempting suicide or is going to attempt suicide in the near immediate future. And so you ha- it sounds like you had enough knowledge about this behavior in general, not that you would ever think that your daughter would do it, but you had enough knowledge to know what the question was to ask that the school didn't know at the time to ask. Right. And, you know, we have a pretty good relationship. So I was able to ask her and she, you know, that was one of my first questions to her is, you know, have you had, have you had thoughts about you know, hurting yourself or or killing yourself. And um, so she was very clear that she was feeling sad. She didn't know she was depressed, but that she was not thinking at all about killing herself. And that's another great question that you asked her, because I know a lot of parents fear that asking about suicide or even asking about non-suicidal self-injury, like the cutting that your daughter was doing, would put the idea in their head. And what we know, I mean, and it sounds like even from your experience with that, asking your daughter those questions is that it doesn't, that there's no research to show that it puts the idea in their head. In fact, the opposite tends to happen and they feel relieved to have been asked and to be able to talk about it so that it's now out in the open. But simply being asked about those thoughts don't put them in the individual's head or make it more likely to happen. So it sounds like you had that knowledge as well. That's really important and you're daughter was pretty forthright in responding openly, it sounds like. Yeah. And she, you know, she did disclose that she had some sadness and I think she was adjusting going through puberty. Sixth grade can be tough out there. 
And so, you know, those things were important to find out too. And maybe she needed to let me know those as well to be helpful. I did ask her later after quite some time had passed if there had been something that she wishes I would have done differently during that time. Uh, And she couldn't really point anything out. She did reiterate that she was very happy that we were able to look around for the right counselor, because I think that that's ended up being what made the biggest difference. Was that a requirement that the school had made in order for her to be able to return? They did. Yes. They said she either had to go to the school counselor who was not a licensed provider, or she had to seek counseling from an outside counselor. And so we chose to go with somebody who was licensed, but then also had some experiences with young people. I'm glad we were able to find somebody. And how many sessions or how long was she in therapy for? So she only went to about four or five sessions at that time and then took a long pause, but has recently started to go back just for conversations. You know, now she's a little bit older. Academics are a little bit more rigorous. There's, you know, more pressures as you get older and being a teenager's tough. And so she just recently said, you know, I'd like to go back and talk with that person if I could, because it was helpful. And it just helps me to remember all the strategies that she taught me on how to deal with stressful situations. And I think that's really important for a lot of families to hear too, is not all therapy has to go on forever, especially with adolescents, children and adolescents. They had this misunderstanding that therapy is going to be forever, that they're going to be in forever, which can be overwhelming to an extent, Mm -hmm. but it does not sound like that was ever communicated or assumed. And your daughter had the freedom to choose, you know, four sessions was perfect. Five sessions was perfect. I had someone to talk to. And because she had such a good experience with that, when she stopped needing therapy in that moment or wanting therapy in that moment, she felt comfortable enough years later to be able to request it again and ask again because it was such a good experience. Yes, and I think that that was really important to me because with healthcare in general, your relationship with that provider is so critical to whether or not you engage in healthcare later. And I wanted her to have a lot of control over that experience so that she could really pull the levers and determine when she wants to turn it on and off. And, you know, even during this COVID pandemic, her provider is just a fantastic person and has been able to do it over Skype or FaceTime. And that is something that really resonates with my daughter because she's a teenager and technology is important for them. And it's an easy way to communicate in a safe environment. I suppose that is one of the good things that has come out of the pandemic is a lot of us, including myself, have switched to or have been able to use telehealth and be able to have sessions with individuals without having to be in the same room, especially for those that may not have the resources or live in communities that are so far away that that it would take an hour or two hours to get to a treatment provider. What about the counselor or the therapist or treatment did your daughter find most helpful? I think it was another sounding board. And so, you know, she could go in there and say, I'm really stressed out about school. She could say things like, I don't want to disappoint my parents and not feel like as if it were me 
saying, well, you know, of course I want you to do well in school. I don't want that to build up to pressure, but I think it just gave her a different strategy to under be able to understand the tools that are out there for dealing with stress. I mean, I think as parents, we want our kids' lives to be easy, but that's not always going to be the case. And I think that it's more important that they have the tools to deal with stressful situations than for life to be easy. And, and I think that's really what she got out of it was different strategies for validating stress and then also finding ways, effective and healthy ways to deal with it. I can appreciate that comment about being a parent, wanting what's best for your child and to do well academically and even come to you amidst stressful times or when she's struggling with whatever topic in life. But at the same time, you're able to respect and not take personally her desire to talk to someone outside the family that might be more objective and have less of an emotional investment and to be able to be a little bit more balanced. And I think that's helpful for parents to hear, to know that it's okay for your child to be talking to someone uh, and you not knowing all the details because you not knowing all the details can be helpful to your child. Right. And I think I wanted her to walk away knowing that there's a lot of really fantastic adults in the world that all care about her. It's not just her, you know, nuclear family that cares about her. And, you know, I think that that's an important feeling to walk away with. To what degree were you involved in her therapy, in her treatment? Really not at all. I set it up. I helped her navigate finding another provider when the first provider, uh, that connection didn't click. I've moved now that she's a little older, trying to teach her how to be an advocate for herself. When she most recently asked to revisit with that counselor, I asked her to make the appointment so that she understands that I can give her the tools she needs, but that she's able to do a lot of these things on her own. And so I try to be there as a sounding board and if she needs support or help, but have been trying to move her closer toward making her own appointments. And, you know, not just in regard to this, but even for uh, well checks and the dentist, that's just something that's important to me that, you know, she learns really early that she needs to advocate for her own health. And part of that is to prioritize and to make these kinds of appointments and so forth. How empowering for your daughter to be able to know that you, as her mother, trust in her ability to take the initiative and to make these appointments on her behalf at such a young age. I can imagine some parents thinking about their own child and say, there's no way, like if I were to put it in his or her hands, they would actually reach out for help if they needed it, including if they were self-injuring. Do you have any tips or recommendations for those parents who don't necessarily feel that their children or teenagers are ready for making those their own appointments? Sure. You know, I think that first one's always tricky and even younger with the younger kids. So we'll have a dental appointment and I'll, I'll sit there with them, but have them call the dentist and make their own appointment and walk them through and step in if needed, if they can't answer a question, just to kind of build up those muscles. And then as they get older, hopefully I can step back a little bit farther and and let them take the reins. And so for this one, you know, she she has the phone number for the counselor. And so she was able to text back and forth with her and negotiate a time that worked for them. And it was all on FaceTime. And so she was able to navigate that and schedule it around her school day. And at this point now, you know, I think she's very capable of doing that. But 
we did start early and extended the leash so that we were more hands-on, but trying to find, you know, non-critical times where we can make these opportunities for them to navigate the adult world. Scaffolding. That sounds like exactly what you did for her was you provided the scaffolding for her to little by little become comfortable with that independence while still being in the room. And now she's sounds like pretty independent in being able to reach out for support, whether it's her therapist or some other medical provider like the dentist. So as a parent, you provided that scaffolding. That's excellent. Thinking about going back to the self-injury and your experience when you first learned about it, that your daughter had been cutting, around that time, what did you already know about self-injury, particularly in children and adolescents? And looking back, what do you wish you knew? Well, as a nurse, I had done some work around self-injury. I work with a lot of adolescents, so I did have a little bit of an advantage on, you know, having some exposure to the content. I had I had no personal experiences with it. So honestly, doesn't really matter what you know when it becomes personal. There's a different level of worry that comes with that. But I think that you know, what I wish I would have known was how to work with the school in a little bit more of a way that would have advocated for my daughter and really wish I would have known about the exam that they did. The physical exam? Right. So that I could have at that point stepped in and said something about that. And that doesn't preclude me from doing that now, but this is very, you know, recent information. (laughs) newer information. And yeah, I think schools, like you said, they do their best, but there's a lot to learn. And I think there's a lot of improvements and a lot of our experts within the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury have done a lot of work with schools. So hopefully now schools will become better equipped and better prepared. A few more questions. You had mentioned at some point her friend's parents finding out Mm -hmm. because her friend wasn't sure if your daughter was suicidal or not. So she told her own parents. How did those parents respond to your daughter and to you? when they found out? You know, I think one of the issues that complicated things, she did have several friends, parents who I think were worried that maybe she was suicidal. And they did, I don't want to say exclude, but they modified the way that our kids were allowed to hang out, which was, you know, not great for my daughter. Has since sort of come around with those parents. But I think that some of the issues around that were this concern that, you know, she was unstable or something a little bit more serious was going on. So the parents were cautious. And to complicate that, I think one of her closer friends then did have a suicide in the family. And so I think that colored what they were thinking about with what was going on with my daughter. And they, you know, retracted a little bit in an effort, I'm assuming, to protect their own child from any sort of sadness or issue that would potentially come from that. But yeah, so that was a little tough on her for sure. That makes sense. Knowing someone in the family having died by suicide might have changed how they responded to learning about your daughter's self-injury and confusing it and conflating it with suicide, just as the school had done. Right. 
so we can have a, a new understanding of the context that your daughter's friend's parents were responding to when they weren't sure if your daughter was suicidal and what effect that might have on, on their own child. Taking everything that we talked about today, based on our conversation, what would you recommend to parents? One, parents of children who have self-injured, and two, parents of those who have found out their child's friend self-injures. So parents for their own education. You know, I think there's, well, if you could have a friend like you, uh, (laughs) you could speed dial. That's always fantastic. But short of that, I think there's likely some very good websites. I didn't use those. I had some really good books on self-injury that I had been using because of my work. So that was very helpful in being able to really understand the difference between self-injury and suicidal behavior or suicidal ideation. So, you know, I think the other piece that is helpful is really to be able to talk with your child. And, you know, it takes a lifetime to really set up a relationship that you feel like you can really have some good conversations during difficult times. But the groundwork that you do is so critical so that when you do have something happen, you're able to really have those meaningful conversations. I think that that's probably the best advice is to do what you can every day to really foster that connectedness and that approachability with your children so that they're able and willing to come to you when they've got something going on. I love that groundwork you said, laying the groundwork now for them to be able to talk to you later should they need to. I think sometimes when I'm talking with families, it's in terms of the emotional or relational bank account. So making deposits now, doing that groundwork now, investment of time, love, emotions, communication, so that when you need to make a withdrawal and talk about a rough topic, we don't bankrupt that relationship or the the emotional bank account. And it sounds like that's what you had done. You had a lot of knowledge ahead of time, partly based on your work, but also partly based on, it sounds like your interest in, as well as your investment in your child, and then laying that groundwork so that it would became an easier conversation. Unfortunately, the time that you found out, or I guess fortunately that you found out, but it's unfortunate to think of your own child having self-injured. What would you recommend to parents who find out that their child's friend is self-injuring? This had actually happened a few years before my daughter's experience where, you know, a family member's daughter had found out the same thing and they were really struggling with, you know, this was a situation where the child's friend had disclosed to her that she was injuring and they were battling with whether or not they should tell the parent with concerns that because she felt open enough to tell them that if they sort of betrayed that trust and told the parent that there would be implications. And so it was really around talking about how the parents can be the advocate for that child and by letting them know they're more able to help their child get the support that they may need. And so I think sometimes it can be difficult for kids. And so when a kid discloses to a parent that they have a friend who's injuring, you know, some parents I think are going to feel challenged by having to have that conversation with a parent of their child's friend. And, you know, it's really just encouraging them to do that, even if it is difficult, because 
it's in the child's best interest that their parent can then help them with what's going on. And it seems that you as a parent in that instance may be more neutral or emotionally neutral to be able to respond in a healthy way to the other child's parents to help them respond to their child and support right. as opposed to invalidation or judgment. Because most parents, they don't intentionally judge their child or invalidate their child's emotions. I would hope not. Most parents are invested and they want what's best for their child, but sometimes accidentally come across as judgmental or invalidating, such as, why would you do such a thing? You got to stop doing that. Right. And kids want to make their parents proud, not disappointed. And so that being able to talk to mom and dad about self-injury in a way that they're not going to respond negatively, either overreacting or underreacting, but show that support and concern. And, and it sounds like as a parent yourself, you're able to provide that to another parent. Yeah, that was the point is really just that encouragement that even though that might be a difficult and awkward conversation with that other parent, that it's worth it and that there's ways to do it that will ultimately help that child. You had, had referenced or we both have referenced our phone call. It's been two and a half, three years. I don't really remember a whole lot <laughs> about it uh, other than not enough to definitely want to invite you to be a part of this podcast. But do you remember what was helpful about our conversation over the phone, if anything was helpful? I think probably the most helpful aspect of that conversation was that this is okay, that it's not common, but not uncommon, and that it's not an indication of suicidal ideation. And really just to sort of ground ground me back out of that emotional response to say, this is something that has some clear pathways that can help your child and that doing something early, getting them into a therapist early can be very helpful, which was the case for my daughter. You know, we were able to get her in. She had only had a few episodes, I think three altogether, and was, you know, then able to talk with her about, you know, future if she was still having those feelings. So I think that that was really, it was the validation and a calm presence. I think I remember hearing you share your story and I was thinking you're doing exactly what I, what you should be doing as a parent. And I don't know if that was helpful at all to know that, hey, I'm on the right track as a parent. <laughs> That's always helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, what would you recommend to professionals? So whether they're clinicians, therapists, or, or researchers in this field that might be listening? You know, I think one of the aspects that, you know, even my daughter's not really clear on right now is, is why she did it. And I think that some research around what are the antecedents, you know, what are the things that are right before an event like that, that potentially increase the risk for that and helps us to figure out how do we talk to young people about self-injury in a way that helps them to understand that, you know, it's something that sometimes happens and that they're are supports out there to help them during those times. I appreciate your comment about your daughter not necessarily knowing exactly why. I think we could explore those reasons, but I think for a lot of parents listening and maybe professionals too, recognizing that sometimes adolescents just don't know why. Our children don't always know why they 
engage in a certain behavior in a given moment, especially when they're asked to think about the past retrospectively. And I know a lot of adults, a lot of us adults don't know why we do what we do. And it can be frustrating. But for parents who want to know to remove those triggers, to remove those antecedents, to make them less likely to self-injure. But I think validating it like you did with your daughter and, and recognizing that it's distinct from suicide, but it can be a risk factor for suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So you're weighing those facts as well. And my last question for you is based on our conversation today as a parent, what would you recommend to people with lived experience, those who have self-injured? People's stories are helpful. I always go back to that advocacy role. Is there something that people who have a lived experience can bring to the table that others can't so that we can partner with researchers and providers to help them better understand and serve young people who, you know, may be going through this. I'm not sure everybody with a lived experience wants that to be part of their identity. So it's also being sensitive to that. And it, you know, really understanding that it may have been a small time in their life that maybe was not as significant. And then for others, it is a time in their life where it's very significant. And so understanding the variance in that experience and sharing that can be helpful. I love that. So not being defined by our behavior, but also sharing our stories of hope and recovery and lived experience, much like you did with us today as a parent of a child who has self-injured. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any additional thoughts or recommendations? It's all about that relationship. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us and for sharing your experience. And this is going to be very valuable for our listeners and parents out there. So thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy. So if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.